The Interchange is brought to you by Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. With Wonder, you can help finance renewable energy projects while earning up to 7.5% annually. To get started, visit wondercapital.com gtm. That is wonder with a U, wondercapital.com gtm. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. We're also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, a global leader in balance of systems solutions for solar and storage. This American company has deployed products on more than 25 gigawatts of solar projects all around the world. Shoals is the gold standard for solar and storage. To learn about how Shoals can make your project operate at the highest level, visit Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Greentech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, GTM's editor-in-chief in Boston. Shale Khan is with me. He's out in San Francisco. He's my regular co-host and the senior vice president of research and strategy with Energy Impact Partners. You need a shorter title, Shale. I know. You can just call me Shale. I'm like Madonna. <laughs> can I just say the SVP of RNS with EIP? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just let's acronymize everything. Well, we've got some more jargon for you. See if you can guess what we're talking about today. Boy, my REIT portfolio CNI building NOI was boosted by the NPV created by the ITC. I just worry about the credit clawback, you know? Should I do a PPA, a triple net lease, or CPACE? <laughs> uh, that's definitely like solar plus real estate. Uh, I, I know that because triple net lease was a and CPACE, those are both commercial uh Issues. I think you said NOI, which is also a real estate financing term. So this is something I, I you lost me somewhere in the middle of there, but that's definitely like a real estate plus solar question. Exactly. This week we're talking about the insanely complicated world of solar finance. So later in the show, we're going to bring on two of our solar finance experts internally here, Michelle Davis and Allison Mond, and we're going to chat about how and where the money is flowing in both residential and commercial PV projects. It tells us a lot about the maturity or immaturity of both of those areas. But first, let's go to our customer care number to hear from a listener. Hello, this is Daniel calling with a solar economics question. I work at a company in Menlo Park, California, that's just renewed our lease for our office for nine years. I've had preliminary discussions with our landlord about installing solar on our parking lot or roof. He's open to the idea, but we're struggling with the question of who pays. This is an improvement to his property that will continue for long after we're there, so I think he should pay. On the other hand, we pay the utility bills, so there's an argument that we should pay. Then there's the question of who gets the tax credit. This seems like a solvable problem, and I would think that some solar installer would have some clear guidelines on how best to solve it, but I haven't seen that. Can you help? Who should pay? That is a great question, Daniel. Shale, what do you think? Yeah, so that question gets to the core of one of the biggest challenges in commercial solar and one of the reasons why commercial solar has been challenging to scale as we've talked about before it's it's basically called the split incentive problem right so you've got a, a landlord who owns the building um, and who is probably going to have it for a long time you've got a tenant who in this case has a nine-year lease 
Um, so that is certainly a shorter lease than the lifetime of the solar project that you would install. Um, meanwhile, the tenant is paying the electricity bill. The landlord doesn't get the benefit of that, but it's the capital improvement on the building um, when you add solar to the roof that that it goes to the benefit of the landlord. It basically, like all the factors that he outlined, are exactly what people talk about when they talk about the landlord-tenant split. Like there's a much shorter lease involved than the than the lifetime of the equipment. The tenant is paying the electricity bills. Everything that you just outlined is problematic. <laughs> yeah, and also he didn't even mention the likely additional problematic factors, or at least the common problematic factors in those types of deals. Um, the creditworthiness of the property owner. So assuming that the property owner might end up financing the deal, are they you know, credit worthy, are they rated? Are they an LLC that doesn't have a balance sheet behind them? Who can monetize the investment tax credit to the extent that they want to do that? If they were going to own the system directly, you know, is there a tax capacity at the landlord level? So in addition to just how should the payments flow for the solar and where should the savings go for the electricity cost, you've also got these additional financial layers that impact how you structure the deal. So let's walk through some of the potential solutions that have been identified by developers and a lot of third parties who are tracking this space. Keep in mind here that we cannot give you specific advice for your situation. What we can do is aggregate some of the solutions that we see identified out there in the market right now. And also keep in mind that many of these solutions are one-off sometimes. I mean, this is one of the reasons why commercial solar is so hard to scale. It can often be project by project. Now, with that said, there are definitely some options. Um, the first being the building owner pays for everything. Um, it buys the system with cash, gets some sort of loan, takes the value of the tax credit, and then renegotiates some kind of lease with the tenants to pass on those savings. So the responsibility really goes on to the building owner, and, and they actually have to have a serious appetite for taking on a lot of that financial risk. Well, but it can I, be done. I, let me a offer a couple of perhaps clarifications on that. The first is, I don't think that actually is a lot of financial risk for the the landlord, you know, the solar array is pretty trustworthy. The risk that they are taking there is that you have a nine year, you, the, the tenant have a nine year lease. They're going to sign, they're going to buy an asset that is going to have a 25 year, 30 year life. And so they need to maintain, uh, somebody in the property, but they would, they would, renegotiate the lease with you such that the cost of electricity is incorporated into the lease. So you, the tenant, no longer pay for electricity. The other thing that I would clarify is they don't necessarily have to pass the savings on to you. You know, if, if your motivation as a tenant is just, I want solar up on this roof, not necessarily savings from it, um, you know, the landlord can just, you know, restructure the lease so that electricity is included within it, all utilities included. And then they get the benefit of the savings from the solar them, themselves. They don't they don't have to pass it on to you. So that's a good point, but there definitely are some risks. Now, I'm going to give full credit here to Casey Peters, who is from Alta Energy Incorporated, and she wrote this fantastic piece earlier this year on LinkedIn about what happens if a commercial building owner invests in solar in some way and then has to transfer the building. So she looked into 
cash purchases. And there are some risks, of course. One risk is uh, just operational risk, right? So the, if the owner owns that system, then they're responsible for operations and maintenance. Uh, there's outstanding project debt. If you still owe money and you want to transfer ownership of the building, well, you got to pay off that full loan. So there's definitely financial and operational risk associated with this kind of purchase. Sure. Yeah. So that that's option number one. Option number two, which, you know, depending on the tenant may or may not be possible is restructure or extend your lease rather. Because you know your biggest challenge is that your lease term doesn't match up with the the length of the solar project. So if you have a nine year lease now, if you're willing to extend that out to 25 years, um, then you could theoretically sign a power purchase agreement directly for the solar project. So there's been examples of that. BJ's did that with Solar City in a bunch of locations where they have a long enough lease term that they just sign the, the power purchase agreement directly. The system gets hosted on the roof and they pay for all the electricity and you can finance off of the back of that because BJ's is credit worthy themselves and has a long enough lease that you know they'll be in the building. Okay, those are two options focused on the building owner. There's also commercial property assessed clean energy where you can actually finance the system through property taxes. That is more popular in the residential space for energy efficiency and and now for solar. Um, it only makes up for like about 2% of commercial solar transactions right now, but it is more easily transferable potentially if the building ownership changes hands. So you've got a few options there to think about. Now let's turn to the tenants. How do they get a benefit out of this? Daniel clearly wants to see a financial benefit here. Well, there, there are, I guess, a, a number of different ways that they could either get benefit in the short term or the long term, depending on how it's structured. Um, if they're okay with longer term benefits, then there are, there are deals that can be structured such that the landlord will pay for the system and will reap the benefit of the savings until they recoup their investment. And then after that point, the remainder of the savings, which should continue on, go back to the tenant. So that's if you can take a long term view. If you want, if you need it in the short term, you know, then then you can get into more complicated structuring where the landlord, you know, either you, you get a cost contribution from the tenant um, that can be sort of a pro rata relative to their their uh, length of their lease as a share of the length of the system, or uh, you know, the landlord pays for it and then passes on some bit of the savings to the tenant directly. So again. Lots of different ways to structure it, depending on where all the incentives are and what the capabilities to pay are uh, from the different players in the deal. But again, that gets to the complexity of this whole thing. Another opportunity for you, the tenant, would be to invest in community solar. And unfortunately, in California, there isn't much community solar. But in states like Massachusetts or Minnesota or Colorado, there are emerging options. And many of these community solar developers need to find commercial anchor tenants to make the project less risky. And so they'll sell a certain portion of the shares of the community solar project to commercial customers. And um, again, unfortunately, there probably isn't this option in California, but for others, it might be an interesting option if they they can't invest in on-site solar and they want to just bypass a lot of these complexities and go straight to getting a share in a project. Right. And it can be either 
community solar and or virtual net metering, which sometimes go hand in hand and sometimes don't. But either way, you know, if you can get the, the credits from a system that is not at your premises, then you, the tenant, can do basically whatever you want. So if community solar isn't an option, you can always check out green tariffs, which are more common. This is uh, probably at most utilities around the country. You could just reach out to your power company and ask what their renewable energy specific rates are. Yeah, I think the distinction is that generally speaking, green tariff programs make you pay more for electricity. And the benefit, assuming you believe the economics of of rooftop commercial solar and often of community solar, is that you should be saving as a result of the installation. So green tariff programs have some appeal because they're easy, but but you know, generally speaking, you're trying to save money, not spend more. Yeah, you can see why that's potentially problematic, and it's why a lot of big corporations are going out into the market on their own. They're actually ditching the utility and saying, hey, we'll procure renewable power on our own. Any other words for Daniel on how to think about solar on his office building? You, I think, are further along than a lot of folks already would be um, in in figuring this out because it sounds like you've already had a conversation with your landlord um, and you're, you know, and they're already on board in principle, and now you're debating who should pay for it and where the savings should accrue. So that's a question you shouldn't have to answer yourselves. It's a question that uh, a commercial solar developer can answer for you. So I would say don't go any further at this moment. Immediately go contact a few commercial solar developers um, and see what they come back to you with, and then use that to negotiate with your landlord. Unfortunately, this is what developers deal with all the time, and there is no neat solution. But if they're worth their weight in solar panels, they're going to help you dig into these potential solutions in a more detailed way. I feel like we've answered the question the best we can at this point. I hope that helps, Daniel. Um, Also, check out our show notes where we'll provide some resources that informed this discussion. And to our other listeners out there, send in your questions via voice memo. Record yourself asking a question on your phone or computer and send it to us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We want our listeners to make sure that they're getting the most relevant content for their needs. Coming up next, we're moving to the other side of the table in exploring this issue from the developer and installer's perspective. But first, a quick word from our interchange sponsor, Wonder Capital. I'm assuming there are a lot of folks out there who also want to go solar, but they're not exactly sure how or if they can at all. Well, you can invest in projects and directly help commercial businesses go solar, all while earning up to 7.5% annually. Since 2015, individuals have invested tens of millions of dollars using Wonder Capital's solar investment platform. These individuals helped finance nearly 200 large-scale solar projects across the U.S. Alongside individual investors, Wonder works with financial institutions like Wall Street hedge funds, uh, one that invested over $100 million with Wonder recently. So if you're interested in helping businesses go solar while earning up to 7.5% annually, go to wondercapital.com slash GTM. That's Wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. We're also supported by Shoals Technologies Group, a leading manufacturer of balance of system solutions for solar and storage. Shoals makes all kinds of products, a combiner box, junction box, inline fuse, a monitoring system, and no matter what the product is, they have a simple slogan for it, inventing simple. Because Shoals makes those products with the highest performance standards and a drive toward elegance. 
Scholes has this new BLA solution that embodies this approach. It is an integrated wire harness that eliminates combiner boxes and significantly lowers installation costs. It's a super popular product for developers out there. So Scholes has been serving the solar industry since 1996, and the company maintains the same passion for quality and innovation as it did during its early days. If you're looking to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions in the industry, including that BLA solution, contact Scholes. You can find out more at Scholes.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Scholes.com. Okay, maybe Daniel didn't realize it when he sent in that question, but he hit on some really important themes that were focused on at GTM. Both residential installers and commercial developers have customer acquisition problems, but they're the exact opposite problems. Residential installers now have more attractive loan options for ownership, but it's getting harder for solar companies to find that next tier of customers who want PV on their roofs. Commercial solar developers, meanwhile, are seeing a switch. Instead of direct ownership, now customers have more access to third-party financing, structures similar to what Shale and I described earlier. But these projects are still bespoke and complicated. So I dove into this exact topic with two of our senior analysts at GTM Research recently, Michelle Davis and Allison Mond. Michelle is an expert on distributed solar, mostly non-residential, and Allison is an expert on residential solar finance and installer business models. We'll hear from Michelle first about commercial solar complexities, and then Allison comes in next on the residential side. I think for commercial, I would say that the bottleneck is more about financing than it is about customer acquisition. There's lots of potential customers in commercial. Only uh, a little less than 1% of all business facilities in the U.S. have gone solar. Really, like, lots of potential in that market. Um, and But the customer acquisition process for these developers in commercial is so different from residential. They have to go out and you know, pick companies or businesses or um, or public institutions, and then they have to make sure that they're talking to the right people. Um, in residential, that's not as much of an issue. The homeowner is your customer. Um, but some companies tell me they will spend months and many meetings just trying to find the, the business decision makers um, within a given company to do a solar deal. Yeah, that's so different from residential. Uh, in the residential market, if in some cases, if you can't uh, close a deal on the first or second home visit, uh, that customer is gone. You really want a very short cycle uh, before you can get them to sign a deal. And you mean that customer's gone because they're probably just not going to be interested? Yeah, they've lost interest. Maybe they've found a competitor, uh, done a little bit of shopping themselves. Uh, but chances are if if they step away from the table, you won't have them as a customer. Right. And in commercial, sometimes developers will court a business for a couple of years. That's not the, the typical, but it isn't unheard of. CNI Solar still doesn't sound very scalable. <laughs> yes, that is very, very true. Um, there's, you know, there's the top tier of customers um, and deals that are investment grade or large projects. But then once you once you sort of look below the surface, beyond the, just that those really appealing deals, everything is very uh, one-off. It's very customized. It involves high transaction costs, lots of due diligence work. Uh, no one has no one has really cracked that nut yet. And there are companies that are trying, companies that um, are innovating, trying to figure out 
uh, financing structures or insurance products that help address that. But right now it seems like you're either uh, big and you do big portfolios, but you have a smaller potential market, or you're waiting in this big, uh, big market for small and medium commercial, but everything is highly customized and difficult to scale. Allison, what about in the in the residential sector? This is a space that we've talked a little bit more about on the podcast, I think because of the pullback of Tesla Solar City and it's got a lot of people more focused on the competitive landscape and residential, some of the key markets um, getting a little bit more saturated. Unpack some of the most important things contributing to this slowdown in growth and residential. Yeah, so it's it's funny. Um, everything that Michelle just mentioned that's happening in the non-residential market um, is is pretty much the opposite of what's going on right now in residential. Uh, even though economics for consumers in the residential space are keeping improving um, despite tariffs or any other policy headwinds, um, it's actually a very good value proposition for consumers, especially in mature markets like California, like Massachusetts, other states in the Northeast, those are the states that actually suffered the most in 2017. Uh, And it really comes down to issues with customer acquisition. Across the board, a lot of companies are struggling to acquire customers to do it cheaply. They're all trying to figure out what's the best way to do that. Some are abandoning door-to-door sales. Um, Some it, you know, door-to-door still works really well, um, and there others are focusing on community events. Um, most installers obviously want to re- grow their referral base, um, but really it's just become a very difficult market to operate in because, uh, you know, there was a bit of customer fatigue in some markets um, in the early part of 2017, uh, and it, it just created a really expensive environment uh, to operate in. The way that... Um Installers or developers interact with customers is very different in non-residential versus residential. There's a lot more pull from non-residential customers, and there's a push to find new customers in residential. How would you differentiate customer savviness and customer interactivity with a developer or installer in each of those sectors? Yeah, in residential, um, I think it depends a lot on the market. Um, I think... And, and the customer, quite frankly. I think there are some customers who sort of understand solar products, but they're few and far between. Uh, you know, these are customers who understand that there are different options available to them. Um, some want, so for some customers, all they care about is monthly or annual savings um, on, on their utility bill. Um, and for a lot of those customers, maybe they know that uh, a lease or PPA product is going to deliver that um, and you know do it better, I'd say, than than a loan product. Um, savings, you know, on a monthly or annual basis, tend to be better with with those TPO products. Um, but then you have other customers who uh, who might want to realize greater savings over the life of the system. These are the customers who might be a little bit savvier, um, and then they want to own their system, even if they, you know, for the first couple of years, their loan payments are actually, you know, it's just a break even or even they're paying more than they were previously to the utility. Um, but so many customers don't know all of the options available to them and they never do. Uh, if there's a 
small installer um, that approaches you and and that's your first interaction, they're likely only going to be uh, explaining customer ownership to you. Those customers might shop around a little bit, um, but you know, for the most part, they're going to go with what's offered. Uh, same goes for a Sunrun business, for instance, um, who might have some options for customer ownership, but is really selling the the Sunrun lease or PPA. Um, and those customers are going to go with that. A lot of I think there's a lot of education needed in the residential industry uh, for customers to understand all of the options available to them because customers just don't know. And in, for, in most cases, customers are just happy if they save a little bit of money. Um, and that's, that's sort of the end of it. They're not, uh, you know, they're not trying to figure out, uh, you know, what does this mean? What are, what are my actual savings? So in commercial, I would say that the structure of the deal, whether it's a PPA or a a customer-owned system or a lease is much more driven by the customer. So a developer or installer will approach the customer and they want to know all the options. They want quotes for all of it. Uh, They want to be able to really hash out all the details of all the different types of financing that they could get and then think about how that fits in with their business. Um, So when we, you know, there's all types of different businesses that either go with direct ownership because it makes more sense for them. So like Ikea, for example, they own all of their warehouses and buildings. That's part of their strategy. So for them in their business, it makes a lot more sense for them to own the solar. But then there's other businesses where they only lease their, their buildings. So it makes more sense for them to do a PPA. So developers have to come to the table with all the different options presented for a customer. Uh, and then the customer has to sort of decide uh, where that fits in with their own with their own business. Solar is often described as mature now because it's competitive with you know conventional generation in in many markets and in many markets you can see year one savings and for rooftop solar. Um, but when you actually like dig into the business models, the difficulty in acquiring customers the continued evolution of how companies are operating and growing, it doesn't feel very mature yet, uh, particularly when you, you know, in residential compared to traditional contracting businesses. Um, do you think we've reached a state of maturity yet? And, and if not, what, what is maturity in solar? I think, I think this is uh, similar probably to other tech industries. That's how I think about solar as it's increasingly becoming a technology-driven industry. Uh, you know, many companies out of Silicon Valley, we know, are not profitable. Solar's the same way. Um, so if you measure maturity just by sort of the number of offerings out there, the number of companies um, in the space, then sure, maybe, maybe it's a mature market. But if you're talking about uh, who's actually figured it out, then no, I think we have a long way to go. So I think the way I might think about it is, I hesitate to say the industry, at least commercial, is mature, but I would say it is maturing. Um, So the sources of capital have certainly gotten more mature. We see a lot more uh, stereotypical private equity, uh, retail investors, institutional investors wanting to get involved in this space. Um, But they're still bottlenecks and there's still barriers. Um, one, One 
funny example uh, that I often think about is some some developer told me the paperwork involved for some of the due diligence they have, they have to do for projects is like the size of a, a file folder. <laughs> so, you know, in that sense, it's still it's still behind the times. That was Michelle Davis with Allison Mond. They are two senior solar analysts at GTM Research, and they have both written fantastic reports on this trend that you should go check out. I've got links to them in the show notes, so it's not too hard for you to go and peruse those resources. You can find out more at gtmresearch.com as well. In the meantime, send us your questions at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Record yourself like Daniel did, and maybe we'll answer it in a future episode. And also, just hit us up on Twitter if you want to do it that way. Shale's there, I'm there, the Interchange Show is there. And uh, pass a link on to your friends or colleagues if you think they'd like the show. And I know we say it every week, but please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I've noticed a distinct uptick in ratings and reviews since we've been asking folks. And we are so deeply appreciative because it does go a long way in helping people find the show. We will catch you next week with Shale Khan. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.